The Bible. It's the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. This sacred book is living and active and contains all that's needed for life and godliness. Stay with American Family Radio for the next hour as we study God's Word and take your Bible questions. Welcome to Exploring the Word. The Gospel of John is wanting you to know that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save you. And in John chapter 6, we find this God doing a miracle, but at the same time speaking truth. A lot of people wanted to follow him because of the miracles, but when he spoke the truth, there seemed to be a parting of the way. This is Bert Harper along with Dr. Alex McFarlane, and it's our joy to be with you on this Wednesday afternoon here. And we're in John 6 as we go our way through the Gospel of John. And Alex, John chapter 6, uh, we got to chapter 3, and we said, man, this is good. We got to chapter 4, and we said, man, this is awesome. Yeah. We come to chapter 6. Guess what? It, it, it's awesome. It, it's awesome. That's the word, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And, and, Bert, it's so good to be with you on Exploring the Word today, and it's such a privilege to have everybody listening, and, and we thank each and every one of you. But as we go through the books of the Bible, over and over, I'll say, my goodness, this is so rich. It's just so chock full of great truth. But John chapter 6 is like that. I mean, there are a number of scenarios all within just this one chapter, 71 verses. And... Um, let me let me just say this when Jesus feeds the 5000 and that's one of the most famous miracles that that he does Jesus feeding the multitudes I mean he's showing a lot of things there his ability to provide his care personally for the needs of people but in a way I think Jesus is showing his uh control of the elements I mean because you know this is amazing uh God spoke the world into existence you know now, we can't do that. There's not a person on the planet that can call into existence matter and and reality. Now, we can change things, and we can take pre-existing material and mess with it, but God can create from out of nothing. In fact, scholars use the word ex nihilo, and that's Latin for from out of nothing. And, you know, when he feeds the 5,000... Verse 2 of John 6 says, A great multitude followed him because they saw the miracles that he did on them that were sick and diseased. And so Jesus, uh, he sees this huge crowd of people, and he says to Philip, um, you know, what are we going to feed these people? And he says, well, you know, Philip says, we don't have the money. There is a lad here. And by the way, Bert, in John 6, verse 9, there, there's the story turns a corner, just like with with Joseph who or who uh does miracles back in the book of Genesis and and Pharaoh is amazed and Daniel says you know but there's a god in heaven uh they they got people they don't have the wherewithal to feed them and verse 9 the story sort of changes but there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fishes but what are they among so many now this is just fascinating what the Lord is going to do and show his authority. And I think some of the dialogue that comes about later in chapter 6, the acknowledgement of his deity, it's a direct result of the miracle that we're going to see here in the beginning of chapter 6. All of John is tied in, but chapter 6, I agree with you fully. Let me make one or two comments. Notice in verse 2 that you've already mentioned there's a great multitude who followed him. Now, if this was a preach, a pastor or an evangelist, a teacher, I'm not sure they would think of chapter 6 as a success because look at, if you would, <laughs> at the last uh, verses in, that, in those areas, and, and you find out it said from that time on, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. He didn't gain any, Alex. He lost people. And uh, I don't know if you call them blessed reductions or what, but I found that intriguing. The other thing that I wanted to say is we've gone over this that you've just already covered so well. There's four solutions about feeding these people. Now, one of the things that you need to remember is this miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
Now, not all four of the Gospels recover uh, cover everything, but they cover this one specifically. It's that significant. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels, the same. They cover yeah. basically the same ministries. Now, they 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 have some differences, but they cover the same area. John, uh, he, he concentrates. Now, this is in the Galilee area, but he concentrates most of his ministry in the Judean, the southern part around Jerusalem. But notice, if you take all four of the Gospels, now here's what the four solutions were. One was to send them away. According to Matthew 15, 23, that was the suggestion, just send them away. And Jesus said, no, they would go away hungry. We don't need to do that. The second solution was Philip said, let's raise some money. Let's take up an offering, see if we can get enough money. It sure would take a lot because we don't have enough in our coffers to feed them. The third solution is Andrew. Hey, I know a boy that has five loaves and two fishes, but what is that among so many? So all three of the, I would say, the solutions that men offer that is not sustainable, but, and you've done a good job, Andrew, God takes, Jesus takes Andrew, and he said, you know, uh, you know a boy that has that? Yeah, I know him. And he comes, and he, Jesus takes it, and, and I love it, and there's sermons that you can do like this. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And mm, uh, it, yes. it met all the needs, and I could not get over that. Man's solutions to just about any problem that I know anything about is always coming up short, Alex. Well, you know, let me say this, and this is kind of a side note. Um, I love to see the way God works in families. I was reading Decision Magazine this morning, and, you know, the Graham family, you know, Billy and Ruth Graham and their kids and their grandkids, uh, it's a beautiful thing how God has worked through the Wildman family. But even here in John 6, you've got um, a family that is very uh, useful in the sharing of the gospel. You know, at the end of John 6, we're going to see Peter's great confession, but right here, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, is the catalyst in this miracle of the feeding of the multitudes, isn't he? And uh, here, here's a family, two brothers, that are very instrumental in the work that Jesus is doing. Um, Bert, I read in a commentary that the barley loaves, that very often barley was the food of the poor, you know? And the lad, in verse 9, has five barley loaves and two small fishes and, uh, you know, multitudes of people. The first thing, Jesus doesn't just say, um, hey, you do know I'm the Son of God. You know, he doesn't assert his authority. He gives the people some instruction. He says, make the people sit down, which the disciples had to do that. I wonder, and I, I'm being speculative here, if they went out across the crowd and the Lord says, sit down. The Lord, you know, just, if you would, sit down, everybody. That's what Jesus says do. And I wonder if somebody said, well, what's going to happen? And in faith, I wonder if the disciples who, remember Jesus gave them a leadership assignment, go have the people sit down. Maybe the disciples with conviction and confidence said, um, he's going to feed us. God knows what to do. But just in this action, and you see that the people, you know, um, they did sit down and they were filled, um, but there was a lot of trust that had to be exhibited here. And, you know, I think the uh, trust level of the disciples, because this is in the first year of Christ's ministry, their belief level and trust level has had to grow just almost hourly, hasn't it? It has. And again, you were talking about Andrew and Simon. How would you like to be known? Oh, that's 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 John's brother. Yeah, that's that's uh you know that's that's Brent's cousin. Andrew is always known that way. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, right. Simon Peter's brother. Playing second fiddle is one of the greatest things anybody could do, as we would say that, and we're saying it in that manner. You know, Peter was awesome. Simon Peter was a leader. But I want to tell you, Andrew. Every time we find him. He's bringing someone to Jesus each and yes, every time. Yes. But every time he's identified, he's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And, uh, what you know, back, if this, back in John chapter 1, 
I mean, you know I love Peter. Peter is one of my heroes, for goodness sakes. I love the Apostle Peter. But Peter's in this group because of Andrew's obedience. And uh, kudos to the the second second fiddle, Brother Andrew. Amen. You know? I, and if you're, if you're a staff member, Alex, uh, I had the privilege of being a staff member and supporting my pastor and just doing everything I could to have him succeed. Uh, pastors and ministers' wives, uh, how difficult it is so many times. Oh, yeah, that's that's Brother Alex's wife. Yeah, that's that's Brother Bert's wife. No, they are, but I want to tell you, I believe there's a special crown for that. And so for anyway. Being in for, the number two yeah, position. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to say, and I'm, I hope it doesn't come across as mean, but everybody, oh, what does these numbers mean? What does five mean? What does two mean? You have a lot of numbers here. What does 12 mean? What was, what does uh, 5,000 mean? It means it's part of the story. <laughs> that little lad had five bar- barley loaves and two small fishes. Uh, some of the numbers, and we've talked about this several times, many of the numbers in the Bible are significant. When you look at the days of tribulation and then God is and they're divided three and a half years, yes, they're significant. Yes, 12 apostles, 12 tribes. But I'm just I'm throwing this out. Don't try to spiritualize every uh, thing in the Bible. They're, they're there. It, the Bible is his story. And part of the numbers is just telling us his story that this young boy had that small amount of food, and Jesus was able to multiply it. So, again, uh, I, I love this story, but don't try to— Alex, I'm, I'm struggling with how to say it. Don't, don't spiritualize it away. Uh, get the grip of it. God takes a little and makes much in it. I think that's yes. the significance of the five and the two. God takes yeah. little and makes much. And and it was a little amount because it was enough. It was a lunch for a boy. That's right. You, you, you know, for for a little boy, it wasn't a big you know spread for a huge group of people, and yet just enough lunch for a boy, and yet the Lord turned it into food enough for the multitudes. But and of course, first thing it says in verse eleven, after the people sat down, first thing he did that we should always do before the meal. He gave thanks. Amen. Hey. Uh, I believe in saying the blessing. Amen. This is the month of Thanksgiving. Let's be thankful, not just on Thanksgiving Day, but every day of the year. Let's give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is Burton Alex on Exploring the Word, and we'll be back with more right after this break. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down each day from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for David Pekoski, administrator of the Transportation Safety Administration. His agency oversees the security of the traveling public in the United States. Deuteronomy 31.8 reminds us of the protection we seek from God as we travel. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for David Pekoski as he works to ensure safe travel in our country. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. This is an important election year in your state and all across the country. And we are joining together to pray the vote. Details at pausetopray.org. People whose parents came from different places in the world sometimes say they're part this and part that, but those parts only add up to 100%. Dr. Evans says that limitation doesn't apply to Jesus. He'll explain why as we spend two minutes with Tony. When we talk about Jesus being the Son of God and the Son of Man, we are talking about him equally partaking of two natures. Jesus has divine nature. Jesus has human nature. They are unmixed, walking side by side in one person. One moment, he could be hungry. The next moment, he could feed 5,000. One moment, he could be thirsty. The next moment, he could walk on water. One moment, he could die. Then he could rise from the dead. Because you got two natures operating side by side in one person. He not only possesses the nature of both 
but he is carrying out a responsibility for both. He is fulfilling a job description on behalf of God and on behalf of us. So as son of God, he is fulfilling what the father says. And as son of man, he is fulfilling what you and I need. And as a result, he can do both in one person because the one person has both operating inside of him. So when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about a whole lot more than a name. We're talking about two natures and two ministerial responsibilities residing in one person. Learn more about the significance of Jesus' role as Savior, Lord, and more. Check out Tony's book, The Power of Jesus' Names, available online at TonyEvans.org. And be sure to join us next time for Two Minutes with Tony. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3 American Family Radio Welcome back to Exploring the Word. In a desperate place, Father, I know you can bear the weight, Father, take me We serve the God of the details, the God who sees people, he sees you and me, and he sees the fine details. Well, welcome back to Exploring the Word, Alex McFarlane and Bert Harper, and we're in John chapter 6. And uh, Bert, before the break, we were pointing out that um, when when Jesus serves a meal, first of all, you say the blessing. They had given thanks, and he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise the fishes as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, verse 12, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above to them that had eaten. This is a miracle. And Bert, I've just I've often wondered uh, the realization that must have come over the disciples as they're passing out the food and uh, five loaves and two fishes and the first row gets fed and the next row and the multitude has eaten, and you get the impression, verse 11, as much as they would. I mean, it wasn't just crumbs to barely get by. I mean, this was a, a meal where it was all you could eat, <laughs> hey, which is yeah. my favorite kind of church supper. Buffet, listen, this is just significant. Now listen to this. This is Philip. You remember, he's the one that wanted to do the money, 200 denarii. That's about 200 days of work for one person. But it said here in verse 7, uh, but it is not sufficient for them, for that every one of them may have a little. In other words, that much money, they would only get a little. But after Jesus got a hold of it, listen to verse 12. So when they were filled, now that's what Christ does for us. He fills us the fullness. And make much of these words, the fullness. God fills us. He fills us up. And so they were filled, Alex, and even had overflow, you know. Yes. And uh, but the significance in what Philip said, I mean, if if we bought that, they wouldn't have a, they wouldn't be, they'd still be hungry. Let me put it in my vernacular. But Jesus, after he got through, they were all filled. Oh, well, amen, amen. And you know, um, I've always been touched by those words: "Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost." Um, God doesn't waste, and we're not to waste either. And the other thing is, uh, I don't. I don't want to do a disservice to this text, but God cares about the fragments of of this world, and I'm talking about the people that are sometimes called the, the least and the lost. You know, every every person is significant to the Amen. Lord. Amen. All of God's creation is significant. I've often quoted, and I, I love this quote, but Abraham Kuyper, the famous scholar who talked about he said, there's nowhere in this universe that you could look, not one square inch of the, the whole of the created world, where Christ, the sovereign Lord of all, does not cry, mine. <laughs> in other words, 
And I'm sure you've heard of Abraham Kuyper. Yes, amen. But he is Lord of all. And let me say this, uh, we're not to waste time, we're not to waste resources, uh, we're, we're certainly not to waste, you know, food and sustenance, and uh, we are to be thankful. And so nothing was wasted, but God is, is all about nothing being lost. The Bible says He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And uh, we're to, just as we're to care for the resources and things God puts in our life, we're to care about people that they would be gathered in uh, as well. Now, talking about numbers, Bert, verse 13, therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets. Now, Alex, I'm interrupting. That is yeah. significant. <laughs> I, I started to say, um, you know, five loves and two fishes, what is that? Well, that was a little boy's lunch. Yeah. But the 12 baskets yes. that are overflowing – um, what does this mean, Bert? Okay, 12 is significant. You find it all the way through the Bible. But there's another word that describes those 12 baskets, and I want to make sure you get that. They're filled as well. Everything that Jesus does fills. And there's people out there, just like the book of Ecclesiastes, they're trying wine, women, and song. And I'm just putting that all in that one category. And they're going to come up empty. It's going to come in lacking. But when Jesus Christ comes in, even with the fragments that you were talking about, Alex, those that seem to be left behind, those that don't feel, they are filled. And 12, you had the 12 apostles. Each one of them went away with a basket. Now, uh, the practical side, I'm, I know I, I'm, that's the pastor in me. I look for practical things. How does this work in the family? How does this work in my life? Uh, I doubt if a disciple could have carried more than one basket so uh, it was enough for each one, each one, but 12, uh, you find it over in the book of Revelation, you find it in Genesis, 12 seems to run through the entire Bible as a number of, uh, it, it's, seven is the word, of, the number of completion, but 12 has the number of participation. 12 apostles participated, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, all of them occupying their slot. You know what I mean, Alex? That that is really good, Bert. That is really good. And do you know? Um, I love this verse. Those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, "This is of a truth." And really, that really means undeniably true. That prophet that should come into the world. This is Jesus. All right. Now, what does it mean that prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy thirty-four, I believe it is. Um, Deuteronomy thirty-four. It talks about. Um, out of Israel, uh, there would be a prophet that would rise up. And Jesus, he fulfilled all these prophecies about where he was born and what he would do. But there was, you know, um, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 34 uses the phrase, that prophet. Well, the Muslims like to say that it was uh, Muhammad, but no, uh, the only person that fulfills all the criteria of that prophet that would come, who would be the Messiah, it's Jesus. And they, they begin to recognize, I mean, you know, that we're not even near the, the passion of the Christ yet. In other words, the rejection, the beating, the humiliation, the crucifixion. And yet they already seem to know just by this miracle, and they're going to see far greater miracles than this even. But this is the promised Messiah. They recognize that. They do. And this lesson leads into a test. They saw this, and now verse 15 gets into another miracle. That's unusual in John. You have miracle after miracle. There's just seven. But here Jesus is walking on the water. Now let's look at it. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. Now, Alex, this is recorded in Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke did not record this about Jesus walking on the water. But let me just share this with, with those of you who are listening. Jesus' hour, this is, this is very common in the Gospel of John. They wanted to make him king. This was not the hour. This was not the time. This was not the purpose. So he departed again to the mountains by himself. 
And notice the disciples and the others in Matthew and, and Mark, it says Jesus would send them to the other side. Now, they're going, he's going to send them into the sea, and there's going to be a storm. We know that. But uh, I, I forgot which author I was reading, but one of the authors said the greatest storm was there on the shore rather than in the sea because some of these apostles, them wanting to make Jesus king, they would have said, yes, let's do it. And so Jesus got them out of the danger of getting out of the will of God and send them into the storm. Now, mm. again, I hope that follows that, but it's so significant that Jesus went apart. He went away from the accolades of the people, and he is the one that sent the apostles away from them as well. Mm. Uh, can we chase a rabbit? Let's chase that rabbit. He went by so fast, we need to see where he's going, Alex. Let's do it. Listen, um, you know, I'm always, folks, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, do I want to dive down this rabbit hole or not? <laughs> but for a moment, let's talk about mountains in Scripture. Jesus perceived that they were going to forcibly try to make him king. And remember, um, a lot of what we see the Lord doing in the Gospels is keeping the timetable on track. You know, and sometimes Jesus would have to slip away because uh, sometimes you've got, you know, Jewish and Roman leaders that were wanting to arrest him or crucify him. Then you've got uh, multitudes that want to forcibly make him king. And in addition to everything else, the Lord is going to keep everything right on track. Uh, but it says he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now, Bert, isn't it interesting? that 500 times in Scripture there are the mention of, of mountains. You know, there's Mount Sinai, and there's Mount Ararat, and there's the Mount of Olives, and Mount Zion, and the city of our God, and there's Mount Calvary. You know, there are a lot of mountains in Scripture. And the Sermon on the Mount, well, I think it's very interesting that whenever in Scripture you see mountains... Sometimes mountains signify the presence of God, because I think about Psalm 121 that says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, and literally the words mountains. Uh, my help comes from the Lord. And then other times, mountains in Scripture talk about things that, from a human standpoint, are physically possible, uh, impossible. Because remember in Matthew 17, Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed, if you believe nothing, nothing should be impossible uh, for you. Sometimes, Bert, mountains represent worship, you know. And we, back in John 4, Jim Stanley and I were talking about the, the woman, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus said, the time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain but uh, everywhere. Uh, so I think it's significant. Whenever you, you read about a mountain, that's uh, worship, the presence of God, the provision of God, the overcoming of human impossibilities, and of course, um, the, the most significant mountain of all, Mount Calvary, where Christ paid our sin debt, the Mount of Olives, where he's going to return one day. But I think it's interesting because we see the word mountain and uh, mountains figure very prominently in the whole panorama of Scripture. With that in mind, Alex, uh, I, our screener said that was a big rabbit. A mountain's a big rabbit to chase, but it was <laughs> worth it. Amen. But I remember years ago pastoring uh, vacation Bible school. is always an exciting time in the local church. It should be and was. And one of the years, every day, they were talking about one of the mountains that was in the Bible. And it was one of the best, I would say, Bible teaching techniques there was that they were able to teach about Mount Sinai, the law. They was able to teach about Mount Ararat, the promise of safety. And although, of course, they ended on Friday with Mount Calvary. But yes, that, that was awesome. And I, I appreciate you listening and, and chasing that rabbit. But let me go on. Notice the rat, the mountain and the sea. He, I was he, just going to say. That a, he went up into the mountain, and the and the apostles went down to the sea. And that doesn't mean he was out of sight. 
uh, he, he was praying for them because it said he went over and he prayed. But when the evening came, the disciples got into it, and they got into the boat, went over the, over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Uh, just because he wasn't come to them does not mean he was not aware of them. Uh, let, exactly. If, if you're listening and you feel like, God, where are you? Where are you? Uh, every once in a while, we'll feel that way. He's there. He was there all the time. and uh, But he's aware, isn't he, Alex? Well, he really is. He really is. And, you know, I, I'm not going to chase a rabbit this time, <laughs> but I, it, it is quite significant that in verse 15, we read about the mountain. In verse 16, the sea. And where mountains symbolize permanence and stability and, and really the presence of God, very often in Scripture, bodies of water symbolize, well, for one thing, the human race, the sea of humanity, but also chaos and disorder. Yes. yes. And we're going to see that here in a minute, the storm, and Jesus is going to walk on the water. But let me just say, if if the Lord is in the mountain, don't be going down to the sea. You know, <laughs> Amen. You, but they, the 11, uh, they go down. Um, when evening was come, the disciples went down to the sea, the, all 12. But they enter a ship. They're going towards Capernaum. It's dark, and Jesus was not with them. But he, he definitely knew. A storm comes up, and they had rowed above 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs. They see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near unto them, and they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. So, my goodness, what a miracle. Um, speaking of control of the elements, multiplying the loaves and the fish, but wow, walking on the water, that's a miracle. Only Provision God and it. safety, right? Provision yes. and safety. Does that sound a little bit like our salvation, Alex? Provision and safety. Uh, Amen. Th that's it. Hey, go ahead, brother. I just, that was yeah. perfect well, setup. Well, you know, uh, as the song says, uh, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Um, I, in, in times past, we've done a fair amount of camping and even some rock climbing. And if you get, if you've ever like been in the space between two rocks, you know, it's very secure. And that, that is our Savior, provision and safety. And when you're in the rock that is Christ, friend, you are secure. Amen. It is I. Do not be afraid. What a promise. He's with us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. We want to take your phone call. That number, 888-589-8840. We would love to hear your question today. AFA Announcing AFA.net slash connect. It's the one click that will link you to so many AFA platforms. Pick and choose which updates you want to receive. Easily subscribe or unsubscribe. American Family Studio. And to quote our privacy policy, American Family Association will not sell, rent, or lease your personal information to outside organizations. AFA Journal. Make a better connection with AFA at AFA.net slash connect. Do you feel like you're in control of your finances, or is it more like the other way around? Sometimes all it takes is a little help and encouragement, and we've got just the thing. It's Money Wise with Rob West. Every weekday morning from 9 to 10 Central, Rob and his money-savvy friends and colleagues help you stay in control of your finances. And it's not from the world's perspective, but from God's. Don't miss Money Wise with Rob West every weekday morning from 9 to 10 Central, right here on AFR. Preborn celebrates that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Roe has been responsible for the slaughter of over 63 million babies. Now the decision to abort a child will be left in the hands of the states, and sadly, abortions will continue in the most liberal states. Over the past 16 years, Preborn has positioned their clinics in the top abortion cities where 50% of abortions occur. Preborn's work of saving babies' lives continues at an even greater level as they save babies' lives and defend their centers from the radical hate groups who want to shut them down. 
Preborn's response is dependent on you, the pro-life community. Be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. $28 sponsors one ultrasound and $140 will help to rescue five babies' lives. Dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or go to preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Investigative journalist and ABC producer James Gordon Meek had his apartment raided by the FBI on the morning of April 27th. He hasn't been seen publicly since then. After that morning, Meek vacated the apartment, which he'd rented the last 10 years, resigned from his job at ABC, and withdrew from a book project concerning the Afghanistan withdrawal, a project he'd previously promoted on social media. Meek, a journalist known for exposing government corruption, vanishes just before his Afghanistan book comes out. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. Just give me Jesus. Welcome back to Exploring the Word, Bert and Alex. And that's what this program's all about, just giving you Jesus. And uh, I was taught, turn every page and you'll find Jesus. And uh, I believe that with all my heart, and we want to make much of Jesus, no matter else what we do. Well, Alex, we've got people that have called in, and we're always it, it is always good uh, when we say the phones are open for somebody to use them, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is. And, folks, the number is 888 888- Five eight nine eighty eight forty. We'd love to have your Bible question, and Bert and I will do our best to give you a biblical answer. But first, we're going to go to my home state, yay, North Carolina, and speak with Melissa. Melissa, welcome to Exploring the Word. Yes, sir. Um, my question is, um, what about children who have never been exposed to the Word or know about God? If they die, where did they go? Okay, Melissa, thank you for that good question. That is a question that if you're a pastor and for any length of time, guess what's going to happen, Alex? There's going to be a death, an untimely death, as we would call it, for a young person, a child, and they want to know that, don't they? They do. They do. And, oh, my goodness, um, maybe the hardest thing that I ever, ever did in the ministry was— I've done two different funerals for children that died that were just, you know, little three, four, five-year-old children, and it's a very hard thing. Um, Melissa, thank you for this question. Uh, First of all, let me just say, absolutely 1,000% unequivocally, uh, I believe that children go to heaven. Amen. Children go to be with Jesus. Now, we could talk about children in terms of their chronological age, but also we could talk about uh, being childlike in terms of somebody's understanding or their capability to understand the gospel. And so, you know, uh, whether it's a, a little child before the age of accountability, the age at which a child truly understands right and wrong, and their accountability to God. Now, when is the age of accountability? I don't know. I, I've, I've known children that were five and six years old that understood that Jesus loved them and Jesus would forgive their sins. And uh, Bert, I, I've, I've talked to lots of families where a five, six, seven-year-old child understood sin and felt sorry for their sins. And then there's uh, the question, a uh, somewhat related question, what about those perhaps that are mentally mentally incompetent and don't have the mental capacity to understand, but children and those that are, you know, mentally challenged, I believe the grace of God, and there's a lot we could say about this, 
but they they go to heaven for sure. I I agree with you fully. The Bible is, I I think, evident of that and explicit with David's child. I really believe that with all my heart. And so, Melissa, um, thank you for calling today. Where to next? Well, Louisiana, Craig in Louisiana, thanks for holding. Welcome to Exploring the Word, Craig. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've been having this question on my opinion on this. Was Melchizedek the pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ before his own birth? Hey, great question. Alex, let me see. Is that the first time you've heard that question? No, we, we've <laughs> had this question quite a number of times. And, and it's it a good a, question because yeah. uh, we, I'm not mocking anything. I hope that didn't come across. I can sometimes in my trying to be funny. But, Craig, that is a great question. Go ahead, Alex. Well, in Genesis chapter 14, um, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. So we've got, you know, in Genesis chapter 14, and of course over in Hebrews and Psalm 110, we've got references to Melchizedek. So, um, I'm going to throw a word out here, folks. It's the word theophany. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. Now, a theophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, And maybe Melchizedek was that because, you know, over in the book of Hebrews, it'll say, you know, without mother or father. Now, does that mean that he was eternal, or does it mean that we don't know who his mother and father was? Um, At the very least, Bert, at the very least, he was somebody that had had a revelation of the true and living God, and he, you know, Abraham pays tithes to him, you know, and so Abraham was a priest, a representative of God, um, but was... And I'll tell you, equally good godly people have differed on this. And at different times in my life, I've differed on this. There was a time in my life I thought, without question, absolutely, this was, you know, the eternal God took on a human body. But but I don't know. I mean, we, we simply don't know, Bert. But I, I'll respect whatever your position is on it, too. <laughs> well, in Hebrews, it was uh, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It sounded like it was a different order, a different person, you know, another of like kind. The word of another is another of a different kind and another of a like kind. And that another makes it sound like Melchizedek, in my estimation, was a real individual and Jesus was him. He wasn't the priest, uh, the Levitical priest, because he was of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah. So, but either way, uh, listen, you said it well. Godly people uh, ha- come out down on both sides. Uh, it's a great question, but the whole thing is Jesus is our high priest, and, uh, and that's yeah. the whole idea of it. Yeah, and and also that God is able to reveal himself to people. I, I mean, you know, that's that's a big takeaway from that. Regardless of the actual identity and essence of Melchizedek, you know, God, God is able to reveal himself, and here, you know, this is before the nation of Israel, before the written revelation that we know about, and yet God had revealed himself. But Craig, thanks for asking that really good question. Well, in Ohio, Tim in Ohio, welcome to Exploring the Word. Hey, fellas. First of Hi. all, thanks for all your service. Greatly appreciated. Bless you. Okay, in the in the Bible, there's so much balance, and the one example I use is Adam brought sin into the world. One man, Jesus Christ, took sin out of the world. Is there any biblical references to the possibility that when the holy conception occurred, that 30-plus years later, that's when the crucifixion occurred on the same date? Is that possible? <laughs> mm. Hey, uh, Alex... Uh, yesterday, uh, I saw my grandson, Caleb, and sometimes they're listening on their way back from school. If he is, uh, that's great. But he was telling me, he said, Papa, did you know uh, December the 25th, Christmas Day, was really not the day that Jesus was born on? 
And I said, is that right, Caleb? He said, yes, sir. He said, I think it may have been in the spring because of, of the sheep. That's when most of them are born and they keep watch over it. And I said, Caleb, you're there, brother. And uh, so it's a good, that's a good question, Tim. Go ahead, Alex. Well, and, and I'm with you. You do see so much balance. I mean, the book of uh, Genesis begins in a garden, and the book of Revelation really ends in a garden. And, you know, you've got the, the mountain range of Ararat where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, his son. And then on that same really range of mountains, you've got Calvary where God sacrificed his son. And so, and Isaac was a picture of Christ that would come. And uh, you do see so much that balances out. And with the, the virgin birth of Christ, I mean, you've got the miraculous virginal conception and then the delivery of the baby. Now, the death of Jesus and the resurrection, will we, will we find out that the conception was on a certain date, the birth was on a certain date, and maybe uh, at a uh, you know similar time, Passover comes along? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but um, I think we're going to be in... I'll put it this way, Burton, we'll move on. We know a lot about the Bible. I mean, we've learned a lot of things, but I honestly think, my, I've got this gut feeling, there are so many treasures of truths in the Bible <laughs> that when we get to heaven, it's just going <laughs> to amaze us how much more even was in there from what the best of the scholars even knew here on earth. Alex, I, I don't want to take up a lot of time, but amen, brother, and also what... I'm looking forward to heaven is all the connections that we don't make down here. You know, we ever so often we, we make a connection. Oh, that's when that happened. But in heaven, we're going to see it as, and it's going to be filled. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. And uh, make sure you're ready to go there, that you've asked Jesus Christ to be Savior of your life, as you've asked him to forgive you of your sin and asking him to be Lord of your life. If you haven't, please do that right now. Alex, Amen. where to next? Uh, John in Arkansas. John uh, in Arkansas, welcome to AFR and Exploring the Word. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this is going to be real similar to the previous callers from Louisiana, but it has to do with Jesus and the Old Testament. And I wanted to ask you guys about a passage that's uh, in John uh, chapter 12, where John's telling us uh, the story about Isaiah and how he saw God's glory, and then he reaffirmed it and said that was Jesus. And I guess my question was, was Jesus at that point saying that, you know, claiming his divinity, or was he actually saying that was Jesus in the Old Testament? And then the follow-on to that is, you know, that gets in God the Son and, and Jesus and, and how that, you know, he became flesh. And, and he was already flesh. He met Abraham and then passed. So if you guys could just talk to that for a minute. Thanks. Thank you, John. Uh, John 12, verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Alex, it sets it up pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> well, well, it really does. And, you know, we were at, along the same lines of speaking about how much is in this rich treasure trove of truth that we don't even know yet. I mean, in the throughout the Old Testament, we've got the promise of the Messiah that would come. I mean, the ark uh, Noah's Ark, well, Jesus is our Ark of Salvation, and, you know, uh, God interacted with Moses and the Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt, really, you know, Jude verse 5 says the Redeemer who brought the Israelites out of Egypt was Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says the rock in the wilderness was Christ. So, you know, uh, when Isaiah had this vision of the temple, uh, and the glory in the temple, it says there in verse 41, like you said, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. So, um, Bert, here's one of the ironies, though. A lot of the prophets saw things that they probably didn't fully comprehend, because Hebrews 11 concludes by saying, these saw the promise afar off. Yeah. And, you know, they were faithful. They had a limited amount of revelation and yet they were faithful to God. We've got the whole big panoramic story. Amen. We know the tomb is empty. We do. Let's, <laughs> we do. And let me say this about people that are in difficult places that 
maybe the gospel hasn't got there as easily as it has for us. And uh, you're responsible for the light you get. Whatever the light you get from God, you're accountable to that. And uh, if you'll respond to that light, I, with all my heart, God will intervene and give you more light. Alex, I believe that is the truth of the Word of God, brother. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, John. And and by the way, you know, while we queue up the next few questions, Bert and I did a book called 100 Bible Questions and Answers. You can find it at uh, the AFA store, the Resource Center, if you Google. And I'm not trying to just, you know, promote a book here, but a lot of these questions and more are in there. And uh, we hope that you'll check out these and other resources as you uh, grow in in the Lord and your preparation for ministry. Well, uh, I'm going to put Greg from Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee. Greg, are you there? Yes. I just uh, recently got back from Israel, and while I was there, I went to Caiaphas's house, the high priest who ha- who pursued Jesus the night he was arrested. And they placed, what they say there in Israel is that they placed Jesus in this cistern at Caiaphas's house, and I was just looking for some biblical reference of that. I have seen some where King David was speaking of a pit that he was cast in, and uh, it sounds just familiar with what I had described to you. Greg, thank you. Yeah. I have been there. My wife, Jan, and I, we got to go to Kaifa's house, and they said this is where they kept. He was kept there for a while. Mm-hmm. And one of the most amazing things, Alex, and I want to turn it over to you so you have plenty of time, but most of the places you go into the Holy Land, they said this is where it could have happened. Now, we know the Sea of Galilee, but we don't know exactly where on the Sea of Galilee. We know different things. But I remember our God saying, we know this is where Jesus stood. That was something mm-hmm. for us. Go ahead. Yeah. Now, this is one of those things, and Bert, you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know of a scripture, but I think it is on pretty good authority, because um, there was a thing called Caiaphas's dungeon, or or Caiaphas's pit, and in Jeremiah 37, it, it seems to allude to this, that um, the Messiah would one day, you know, be held in this, you know, you could say a cistern, it's not in the Gospels, but it, the early Greek church, you remember there's the Eastern Orthodox and the, uh, the Western church, it's part of the tradition of the Greek church. And I'm not saying that's exactly biblical, but uh, very often, because they were so desirous to preserve the ministry and the life of our Lord, um, it certainly doesn't contradict any other stuff that we do know about Jesus. It really does. doesn't. And sort of like the Church of the Nativity, uh, you know, yeah. uh, that was early on, 300, you know, yeah, it AD. Was. And, and that's pretty sure that that's where that took place. So the same thing about the pit there. I, we called it a pit, the Encaphas house. So, mm-hmm. amen. Great questions, Alex, today, wasn't it? It was. Folks, thanks for listening to Exploring the Word. We're going to be back tomorrow with more. Keep your radio tuned to AFR and tell people about Jesus. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.